So, so what we want to do now is I want to kind of go through some rules and give you guys some practical things of how to do interpretation, okay? So this is going to be the first key, right? So there's going to be some keys to interpretation. This is the first key, okay? And this is what we want to do is to identify the type of literature we're dealing with when we open the Bible. There's several different types of literature, okay? And they each have a set of rules. So you understand this. If you're going to a comedy show, are you expecting him to teach you uh, theology? No. no. You, what are you there for? Comedy. You're expecting things to be humor. You're expecting to laugh. You're going to be looking for jokes. Okay? Um, if, you're, if you're listening to... If you're listening to politics, you're listening to Joe Biden speak, what are you expecting? A, a good nap. A good nap. He's, he's sleeping as well, so don't worry. Uh, right, um, we, circus. You expect, you expect an Easter Bunny directing him, like, you know, Secret Service is in the Easter Bunny costume going, no, over here, President, you're supposed to be here. It really is quite amazing, because I, I don't know how many of you have you know, do any kind of, well, probably none of you, but have any of you do any work for federal government at the level where you're with the president, but everything's orchestrated. Like, if you work with the president, you have to understand everything is orchestrated. Like, there's nothing, like, it's amazing to me that he's constantly walking the wrong direction. <laughs> because all of that is, I mean, it's, it's listed on the ground exactly where he's supposed to stand and where he's supposed to walk off. Secret Service, I, I, I can tell you, they, they, everything's marked out. Right? And so, because they don't want to take anything for chance because they're the ones that have to be at the right position. I'm like, going, what is with this that he's always in the wrong place? And they're always having that. Like, I'm convinced the Easter Bunny was a Secret Service guy that was just there to, like, dance around and go, okay, let's make sure the president gets to where he's supposed to be. Anyway, why diverge? So, right, when we end up looking at a comedy show versus a political rally, you, have, you expect two very different types of, of speech, right? And you're going to interpret based on that. You're not going to sit there and listen to the comedian and expect that to be taken as a literal teaching of this is what we're going to do in the country. Right? So you're doing that naturally. So the Bible has different types of genres or, or styles of interpretation. And each of those have different rules. And that's one of the things we want to do now is to look at the different genres in the Bible. And look at the different rules that they have because this will help you immensely when you go to interpret. So the one that's most used is historical narrative. Okay, this is going to be, you know, all of the historical books in the Old Testament. This is going to be your Gospels, your Book of Acts. So th these are going to be ones that are telling history. All right, Hebrew poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, the, now, Hebrew poetry is different than our poetry, okay? We're going to look at that a bit, but <clears throat> it's based on parallels because God knew that the, his word was going to be translated. I think he decided to do poetry in a way where it's not rhyming, right? We do things, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, and then you, you think of something that rhymes with you, right? That doesn't translate well, <laughs> right? Okay, well, when you have poetry that's based off of line one and line two being a parallel 
You can translate it that into other languages and it still has the context. So with Hebrew poetry, we're going to look at, okay, what, what type of parallelism is it? But, but you have, those are going to be sometimes hard for us because you just don't read it and say, oh, that's the meaning. It takes a little more work. Wisdom literature, okay? Uh, much of Proverbs, Ecclesi Ecclesiastes, is wisdom literature. This is a kind of a branch of Hebrew poetry because it uses a lot of it, but it also has some other things. And then prophetic literature. The, pro the prophets in the Old Testament, Revelation. That Revelation is a book everyone loves to study. It's a great book to start studying, right? So it, I know people that, you're not alone, I know other people that they started, they, you know, some people start with the Gospel of John, some Matthew, some Revelation. But but Revelation is, is one, it's very, it can be very difficult to understand, but there's different rules for it. And then the easiest one, the one we really want to, if you're going to focus on, is instructional literature. These are going to be all, all your epistles, much of the New Testament. So let's look at each of these and look at some rules for them, okay, because this will help you. And, and like I said, I have all of this in, in the syllabus we have all of it on, on the classes so you could dig in more. In fact, in the syllabus that we have, we have a one page that will lay out every book of the Bible and which one of these it fits in. Generally. Why do I say generally? Because even though Genesis is, is historical narrative, there are parts where it's instructional. And so you can't just say, oh, well, the whole book is this. Because even the whole book is that, there's parts that are not. And so you have to look at the passage you're actually looking at, even though knowing what the book is, that may help you to understand, okay, generally this book is going to be historical narrative. It's probably, that would be the default to, if you're not sure, but then as you read it, you go, oh wait, he's giving instruction here. So we'd, we'd use a different set of rules. That makes sense? Okay. So, <clears throat> one of the things with historical narratives... <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things with historical narratives is that historical narratives do not directly teach doctrine. Okay? It's not trying to teach you what you should do. <clears throat> I said earlier for the men, just because Solomon had a thousand women doesn't mean you get to have a thousand women. <laughs> I don't understand why anyone would want to try to do that. <laughs> Pleasing one woman is hard enough. Um, but the, the reality is, is that this is the, the mistake a lot of people do, is they say, well, if it's in the Bible, then it must be what we should do. <clears throat> the Bible talks about slavery, therefore we should have slavery. That was an argument people used to make. Slavery is right because it's in the Bible. Well, first off, the slavery that's in the Bible is not the slavery they practiced in America and, and elsewhere, and it's still practiced today in, in the world of ownership. But the reality is that it's recording what actually happened in history. Okay? So historical narratives do not always record what should happen. What they record is what did happen. Okay? So it can record something that God would be against and record it accurately because it actually happened. So very minor thing. I don't think I'll upset anyone with this one but it's just a fun one to get you thinking about. I think what the Bible records in Acts 
is the 11 disciples trying to replace a 12th disciple and choosing the wrong person. A lot of people think, well, it has to be because we see it recorded in Acts. What that records is what actually did happen. I personally believe that Paul was the 12th disciple. He's the replacement. Now, you want to argue there's 13 of them? Okay. But you see, what, what the reason I base it on is what we see in Acts. We don't see God saying, this is what you should do. We see is that they said, okay, we need a 12th one. This is how we're going to do it. That's what actually happened. Nowhere do we see God saying they should have done it or they shouldn't have done it. So we don't know. And that's what we get with the historical narratives. Historical narratives do not always include statements of whether something is good or bad, whether it's commending or condemning the behavior. It's just saying this is what happened. And if you want to argue over the 13th, so I am, I am trying, you, you'll appreciate this. Justin Peters and his previous pastor, Jim Osmond, disagree on that. They've been, we've been joking for years about getting them on Apologetics Live to do a debate on it. Uh, I'm very anxious for that debate because Jim Osmond can pretty much convince me, I think, of anything. Um, the guy's just brilliant. He's, in my opinion, sorry, Steve, but I think he's the best preacher in the world. I, I put him above John MacArthur. I know that some of you just think that I would just, you know, commit. Jim Osmond. Jim Osmond. He used to be J Justin Peters' pastor from Sandpoint. From Sandpoint. He's outstanding. Uh, but he, Justin and I agree. Jim doesn't. I, I keep saying, well, Jim, let's see if you can convince me. <laughs> but, but historical narratives are going to teach you or are going to say what actually had happened. Unless it tells you, like we have passages with Solomon, we have passages in the Bible that make it really clear it should be one man and one woman. So we can look at that and say what Solomon did was wrong. Why? Because other passages of Scripture condemn the behavior. You understand? So the actual thing of what Sol what's recording with Solomon is just recording this is what happened. Historical narratives are not analogies with some hidden meaning. I can't emphasize this enough. I've emphasized it already in the last hour. But this is what so many people do. They go to a historical narrative and they start looking for spiritual meanings in it. Any of you guys know the name Harold Camping? Okay. I, Harold Camping used to be the, the example I used for how not to interpret the Bible. Because basically everything he did was in that camp. Sorry. Pun wasn't intended, but it works. Um, the, the thing is, is that he just got it. <laughs> the thing is, Harold Camp I actually called up Harold Camping's show once just because I wanted to see you know, how he, he's, he, was, he would always do this. Everything had some special hidden meaning. And people would be like, oh, you're so smart. I would rather not impress people with how smart I am and taking the Bible and twisting it and having to do gymnastics to go, look, you couldn't have seen that. The Bible's not meant to be read that way. It's meant that you can read it. If you're, even if you're a five-year-old, you can understand the basic meaning of it. Okay, you may not understand all the depths of it, but that's why we keep studying but it wasn't meant to be something where we have to look for something that's not there. I remember I called Harold Camping. I said, hey, in Leviticus, I think it's chapter, I think chapter 14 now, but in Leviticus it talks about a house having, having a leprosy. And he went into how the house is really the church because that's a house of God and the church of God can be diseased. And I'm like, yeah, it's really just that a disease that got attached to a house. Now, that may not have been so popular until COVID, whenever all of a sudden people were wiping down their groceries. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden, we have new meaning and understanding of that. 
historical narratives, narratives are first and foremost stories about God. And we have to understand them in that way. We're looking to see what God is doing through time. We're not looking at what God is doing for me. Hence, Jeremiah 29.11. What's God doing through time? What he's doing through time is he's promising a nation that he's saying, I'm putting you into captivity, but I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to restore you. He's doing that through time. What's the focus? is on God's faithfulness, not the Israelites on their selfishness getting, hey, look, God's going to give me health and wealth and prosperity, the way that passage is used. All right? So <clears throat> with historical narratives, when we look at the rules, these are the rules. We're looking at what actually happened and if we want to see if this is something that is instructional to us, we have to look sometimes elsewhere to say, is there something that condemns or commends the behavior that we're reading about? And if we don't find that, there's times where we can't. We, we just can't. So, so let me give you an example. There's, uh, there's a book that was written uh, some years ago called Should She Preach? about women, whether they should be in the open air doing open air evangelism, standing on a box and proclaiming the gospel. Now, the issue, one of the issues that the people made was that, well, look at the woman at the well. She goes into town to proclaim to all the men about Jesus. So it can't be wrong. Here's the question. Is there anywhere in the passage where you see that God condemns or commends the behavior? No. What is it telling us? What actually happened? So did God approve or disapprove of her behavior? We don't know. So you can't use that passage to try to make the teaching that a woman can't get up in the open air because that passage just tells you what she did, not what God thinks about it. Besides, what was the focus of that? Was the focus on that to teach that she spoke to the men? No. The focus on that was, hey, come and see Christ. <laughs> right? So not only are people taking that out of context, they're violating the rules for how to interpret historical narratives. Do you see that? This is why I try to give lots of examples so you could see these things. All right, let's look at Hebrew poetry. Now, this, I, I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Hebrew poetry, I said, is going to be focused on, um, on parallelism. Okay? And I, I, we won't, I don't have time to give you all of the examples of it, but I want to touch on some of them. Okay? So you have some, you have some that are going to be synonymous. Okay, this is where the second stanza, so you have two stanzas that are going to be parallel. And the second stanza is going to basically say the same thing as the first for emphasis. So what you're looking for, when, when you do these things, what you're looking for in Hebrew poetry is what type of parallel are you having? Because if, if the focus on, on this case is synonymous, you're looking for what is it that the two verses have in common. Because that's going to be the main point. You're going to have synthetic where the second builds on the first. So you have something that gives you a partial thought, and the second one expands that. Well, the emphasis is on whatever it is that was mentioned in both that's now expanded. So you're looking again, you're going to look there for what is in common with the two. You're going to then realize that when it expands it, that's, that's to emphasize the main thing. Okay, where sometimes what people do is they, they end up emphasizing the thing that's there to point to the main thing. 
Emblematic is where the first line illustrates the content of the second, right? So talking about our heart, you know, panting after God like a deer. Well, a deer is the, is the illustration of what? Our, how our heart should be with God. The way a deer would pant for water is the way that we should pant for God, right? So what's the emphasis? The desire for God, not the deer, <laughs> okay? Uh, and antithetical is where the first line is coupled with a second line, but in contrast. So in this case, what you're going to have is something where um, you're going to have the word but will be an indicator. So you're looking, now what are you looking for there? A contrast. So when you'll see the wise man and the fool, you see this throughout in Proverbs. What's the contrast? It's the wise and the fool. And each of those times you're going to see something that makes the person wise and something that makes the person a fool. That becomes the emphasis. That contrast between those two. Climactic is where you have the second completes the first, but it brings it to, to a climax. And therefore, it's the climax in this one. It, where before, when we looked at one that expands the first thought, you don't focus on the expansion. When you have the climax, the climax becomes the key. And so we, as you look at each of those, you, um, our last one is called formal. It's where the two lines are together express one thought. And uh, this is where the, the, this is why Hebrew poetry is so difficult because you have to really understand all the different types of poetry and dig into them. It, it's more than we have time now to do. Uh, but like I said, with the videos we have, I walk you through examples of each of these. But this is if you're gonna if you want to go and interpret Psalms, Proverbs, then you're gonna want to dig into you know studying out Hebrew poetry and understanding it. Okay. Next one is wisdom literature. Uh, now, wisdom literature, I said, it deals with the parallelism of Hebrew poetry, but it also focuses a lot on comparisons. Rich versus poor. Wise versus fool. Throughout Proverbs, you see that. By the way, the book of Proverbs is, one of the, is, is the, really the only book that is meant to be verse by verse, taken in verses, because it's a bunch of truisms. They're general principles. They are not promises. Okay? So let me give, let me, did I, did I say that I might ruin your favorite Bible verse? Okay. Just, just checking, because when I, I'm going to ruin another one of your favorite Bible verses. In Proverbs it says, that train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart. And so many parents use that to say, well, I trained my child biblically, and they went away from the Lord, but the Lord promises they are going to return one day. It's not a promise. It's a general principle. And oh, by the way, most people get that general principle opposite. They get it completely backwards. The way that says in the Hebrew is if you train up a child in his own selfishness, that's his own way, you give that child everything he wants. You spoil that child. You got an entitled child that's never changing. It's exactly opposite. Now, granted, how do we not train them to be selfish? Well, you got to train them biblical principles. You got to break them of their selfishness and teach them the right way. But the idea of that proverb is if you train a child in his selfish bent, He's never going to depart that from that. You need evidence of that? Uh, 
walk out the door. We have a whole country of entitled children. Even though they might be in their 40s or 50s, they're still entitled children. Okay, they haven't grown up yet. But you see, people get that first exactly backwards, and then they hold it as a promise. It was never meant to be a promise. And it's, a, it's trying to give a truism, okay? It's trying to give either a comparison, usually, or a contrast. And so it, what it's doing is it's, it's tr- the parallels that we're going to see are usually with, with wisdom literature. Comparisons or contrasts are going to be the two main ones. But we have others. We sometimes have similes and metaphors, You'll see the word like. Well, that's going to tell you it's a simile. Okay? You'll see portraits. Proverbs 31. Right? Describing a godly woman. That, what is that? It's, it's, it's not speaking of a specific woman. It's giving an overall of, to, to a king. If you want to have a godly wife, this is what to look for. And that's, that's giving a portrait. Wisdom is described as a person, as a woman. All right? You also have these little vignettes, little stories. And so you have to understand what, within the wisdom literature, you have to kind of figure out, okay, is this kind of giving the parallelism? Is it contrasting? Is it, you know, is it giving metaphors? Because again, what we don't want to do is take something that's supposed to illustrate something and make that the main thing. All right, prophetic literature. Uh, I'm going to deal mostly with the Old Testament right now, but this works for Revelation as well. But you want to identify who the prophet is. That can become very important. Is it important to know who Jonah is and who the Ninevites are? Okay, so we want to identify the reason for the the prophecy. With Jonah, the reason was the prophecy was uh, call them to repentance. Jonah's like, yeah, I don't want that. Right? What, what's Jeremiah? He calls them to repentance. Tells them, hey, there's going to be 70 years of captivity. And they go, oh, that's great news, Jeremiah. No, they threw him in a pit. <laughs> and said, we don't want to hear you. And, and the, when, the, when the captivity came, they, the, the invading army says, oh, Jeremiah, let's get him out of the pit. <laughs> Identify who the audience is. Right? The, the audience in the case of Nineveh is unbelieving Gentiles who seem to have a better appreciation for the word of God and the judgment that is proclaimed to them than the Israelites that Jeremiah proclaimed judgment to. Strange, huh? The audience can make a difference. Identify the time of the prophecy because that can become an issue. This is something where when we're looking at it, uh, when these things occur historically, Tell, tell us, so we have Daniel. He lays out four kingdoms. And the interesting thing, he, you know, he mentions, I mentioned already, he mentions Rome, and he mentions Greece. Why doesn't he mention the Medo-Persians? My guess? Because what would, what would Nebuchadnezzar do if he mentioned the Medo-Persians? Wipe them out. <laughs> right? He'd say, well, that's where the focus is. No, he just says two, two countries that are going to come together as one. And they're going to take over without a fight. And that's exactly what happened historically. Uh, you might want to look at what the, what the location is of the, the, the prophecy, where they are. Could it be important that John is on the island of Patmos in exile? Yeah, actually some of that does come into play. 
Okay, lastly, for the rules, instructional literature. This is the one that I'll encourage you to start with. It is the easiest because it's instruction to specific people to address specific issues. And you have to first know who the people are and what the issues are. The book of 1 John is a book that many people misinterpret to try to say that we could be sinlessly perfect. Once you become a believer, you never sin. You'll come to that if you don't understand who, why John's writing and who he's writing to. John is writing a book to a bunch of people known as Gnostics. Anyone hear, heard of that before? Okay, so the Gnostics were these group of people that believed within Christendom, they were making their way in Christendom, and they, were, they basically said anything physical is evil. Anything spiritual is good. So one of the things Gnostics would teach is that you can go and sleep with a prostitute, and as long as you don't give your spirit over to her, it's fine, it's just the flesh. They would justify sin. They had a pattern of life of living a sinful style, but excusing it, going, that's just my flesh doing it, not my spirit. How do you separate those two? Just saying. But it was a way of, was making its way in Christianity where people were justifying sinful behavior as a pattern of life and saying, but I'm still spiritual. And this was starting to run rampant throughout Christianity. And John starts addressing it. So John makes this hard division line. And, he, and when you read it outside of the context of realizing he's speaking to people who are living a sinful lifestyle but saying they're Christian, he's making it sound like if you do any sin, you're not a Christian. Right? He makes it sound that way because he's speaking to people that are sleeping with prostitutes and excusing it. See, the context of who he's writing to makes a big difference there, doesn't it? All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. That's not what we're talking when we, when we have people today trying to say, oh, we could be sinlessly perfect. By the way, if anyone thinks that they could be sinlessly perfect, give me 10 minutes. I'll get you angry. I'll show you you're not sinlessly perfect. <laughs> the gift of antagonism. No. <laughs> Actually, i to be honest, I stole that from Matt Slick. He actually did do a debate with a bunch of people that believed they were sinlessly perfect, and it, which was crazy. He had like 200 people in a room that thought none of them sinned, and he's like, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and it, it was quite interesting because in the debate, they, they, one of the guys got caught telling a lie. It was like, I thought you were sinlessly perfect. But understanding who it's written to, who's writing it, here's the thing. When we are looking at the Bible, we want to understand the meaning of it. What we're looking for is a term called authorial intent. What that means is, what did the author mean by what he wrote? Not how we can twist it to mean what we want it to say, but what did the author mean? More specifically, what did God mean by what he wrote? Because even the human authors sometimes didn't fully understand what they wrote. John says that with Revelation. Right? We don't, don't fully comprehend everything. Jeremiah says the same. So, so what you end up seeing is that there's times when even the human authors may not have fully comprehended everything that God would have them to write. But there's one meaning, many applications. And that, that's the difference. Look, the Bible is not written to be like Pilgrim's Progress. Okay? It's not written to be some allegory where everything has a hidden meaning or a duplicate meaning. 
And when people look to, to do that with the Bible, they're just, it's like they're looking for something that's just not there. And so uh, what we want to do with instructional literature is, is look for the specific people who wrote it. What did the author mean? Who do you write it to? And instructional literature must be understood in the context of the issues being addressed before we try to apply it to, how, to us today. Because if the situation is not the same, it may not apply. Okay, so the first key that I have for you is, in, is identification. You identify the type of literature you have. Anyone want to give me some of those types of literature? Just shout any of them out. Instructional. Huh? Poetic. Historical narrative. Wisdom. Prophetic. Right? So there, so you go. So those are there's some more categories you could break down more, but those are general the general ones and the general rules. Okay, so the second key. First key is identification, identifying the type of literature. Second key I have for you is investigation. This is really hard. I'm going to tell you, it's really, really hard. You ready? All right. First question to ask is who? That was hard, wasn't it? Whew. Oh, boy. All right. But who is, you want to ask the who's? Philemon. Who is Philemon? He's a slave. Who's Paul? Paul's an apostle. What's the relationship between the two of them? Yeah, he leads him to Christ. What does he tell him to do? Go back to who? His, his master. He ran away. Understanding all those three relationships helps us to understand the book of Philemon, doesn't it? Think about what, you ever think about what Paul's asking him to do? Hey, hey Philemon, I want you to, I know you ran away and probably stole some money and this guy could have you killed or thrown in jail, but the right thing to do is go back. You know, I used Philemon once in this way where we had a guy who was in the country, he was here illegally for many years, got saved. He was in our church. He was in the church for two years and we found out he was here illegally. And we said, you know, the right thing to do is to go back. And if God has you to come here legally, that would be the thing to do. And here's a guy who was, he, he had been struggling with a lot, he was struggling financially, he really wanted to get married, couldn't find anyone. He ends up going back finds a woman, has a church, he now pastors. He thought America was his, his, the, the, where God wanted him to be. That's the big dream. Two. Yes, yeah, uh, correct, correct, sorry. Yep, my bad. I, I didn't say I'm always right. I just think I'm always right. No. <laughs> and if you, if you want, you can ask my wife. She, she'll tell you that I always think I'm right now. <laughs> Yeah, Philemon was, was, the, was the master. Onis, Onesimus was the slave. Uh, you know, I, you know, so you want to ask who. Uh, determine who the writer is, who, who the recipients are. Determine if there's any other characters mentioned. Determine any details of these people. Is it important that four of the disciples are, are fishermen? What do you think? Did I give you a case where that could be important to know? Yeah, because they're out on the Sea of Galilee and they're scared in a storm. What kind of nationality are they? You think that happens to be an issue with Jonah? Mm, yeah, he might have some national pride. What kind of occupation do they do? Being a shepherd, is that important for understanding who King David was? What about their family? What, what about their, their character or, or any other significant features? Ask the question who. In fact, what, what I do with people that start out with this, we have 
and, and you can photocopy it if you get the syllabus, but in the syllabus we have a thing that just asks these, these questions with lines in it, so you can photocopy that and take any passage and just fill this in. What you want to do is take notes and write down all the people that you could see. Even sometimes those people are just referred to as he or they. Well, if you see a pronoun, figure out, and I don't mean the way people use pronouns today, <laughs> but if you see a pronoun, figure out who that's referring to. By the way, okay, here's a simple trick you could do with the pronouns. If people are demanding of you to use a pronoun that is incorrect, I've been doing this for over 10 years now. I even have it in my phone. My pronoun is your majesty. And I believe you have to bow when you say it. And so when people tell me, you know, that I had this happen, a guy in a polka dot dress, heavy beard, 6'4", 6'6", something like that, big heavy set guy, clearly a guy. I'm a girl. You have to call me her. I said, well, you have to call me your majesty and bow when you do so. I'm not doing that. Well, if you're not going to respect my pronoun, I'm not respecting yours. And it's actually in my phone. If I ask my phone, who am I? Well, you're Andrew, but since we're friends, you say I can call you your majesty. I've been waiting for someone to challenge me on it, okay? I did that because in New York, you can be charged $250,000 for misgendering someone. Yeah. Now, I don't quite know who gets the money. I think it's the city. You know, but... Still, so, and I've literally had the, some, the, a police officer was there and someone tried to, to call, tell a police officer, he, he's not calling me the right gender. And I said, officer, that person, I didn't say which gender, I said, that person didn't tell me, didn't refer, won't refer to me as your majesty. That's my, that's my pronoun. And the officer was like, whatever. <laughs> right? I don't mind using the absurd to show the absurd. <laughs> okay? Although it was kind of fun when the uh, abortion thing got leaked. Right? I, I heard a woman in the, in the store, and she's making this big deal. She's two people in front of my wife and I, and she's talking to the cashier, and she goes, she's saying how it's you know, these, these very ignorant and stupid people that, that believe that a woman shouldn't have the right to choose to, to abort their child. And I just, since she was being really loud, I don't typically do this, but I just said, ma'am, I agree with you. You're right. Pete, we, sh we should allow anyone to murder whoever they want. Now, now, she had never been challenged before, I could tell, because she just looked at me like, she goes, well, I, I wouldn't do it myself. I said, I agree with you. I would never murder myself, but we should allow others to do it if they want. She goes, well, I don't think a man should tell a woman what to do. I said, I agree. We should make abortion illegal because it was nine men, nine male justices that chose. And she goes, well, you're a man. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have any say on this. I said, excuse me, I never told you how I identify. And she looked at me incredulously and like, <laughs> and she, she walked out. And of course, I, I apologized to the cashier. I said, I don't know. My, my mom taught me that, you know, our, you know, everyone has an opinion, but you should keep it to yourself. You know, and the lady in front of me goes, yeah, what was with that lady? Just, in, you know, insulting people that don't agree with her. You know, in a public place like this. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And then I started sharing the gospel. I don't know which one they got more offended at. <laughs> so the first question is, ask who? Second question is, ask where. Where's the writer writing from? Okay. Um, determine, any, determine where the recipients are. Determine any significant ge geographical features that are mentioned. Sometimes they're not mentioned, right? I mentioned the Sea of Galilee. That doesn't mention that there's, there's mountain ranges all around it, but I can look at an atlas to see that. Okay. Determine any localities that are mentioned. 
Jesus, you, you ever wonder why Jesus gets onto a boat and pushes off from land to speak? Some people are, say that it's because he was afraid that the crowd was going to overpower him. Anyone know why he might have done that? See, as an open-air evangelist, I know why. He didn't have something like this. Amplification. Water amplifies the voice. See, so when he gets on a boat and spread and gets away, he's using the natural surroundings of water to bounce off. That's why he goes up on mountain ranges. Because the voice can, can, be, can carry off. So things like that can help you understand why he, why he would go to certain places, do certain things. <clears throat> Ask yourself when. Determine when the text was written. What time of year? Um, you end up seeing in, in, you ever think about this? How old, how old do you think Daniel is when he's in the lion's den? See, all the pictures we see is this young man. However, here's the problem. We see that he was, in, cha- in Daniel chapter 1, he's got to be a young teenager. And he lives through 70 years of captivity because now in the lion's den, it's the Medo-Persians. So he's got to be like 85, 90 years old. This is a different picture of a guy thrown into the lion's den. Right? How do we know, how do we get that? Because we just looked at what the times mentioned. It mentions the Medo-Persians, and we know that's 70 years of captivity of the Babylonians. Well, it's at the end of that. Right? Determine any, any mentions of the time of day. You, you have, um, not just that, but festivals and holidays. Okay? In... Uh, Nehemiah, he mentions that he hears about what's going on in Israel and then he goes before the king and it's the next chapter. That seems pretty quick. Except we have the, the, the months mentioned and we know it's four or five months later. He had been praying for four to five months. What was he praying for? He was probably praying because he knew he was going to be before the king and he was praying for how he was going to deal with it. How do I, why do I say that? Because as soon as the king says, what do you need? He had a whole plan. I think he had four or five months of planning. So it's like, and I also think part of it is, uh, Lord, don't have the king kill me when I bring this up. <laughs> so when it says that the king asked what's wrong with him, which he shouldn't be in, in sad, he says to the king, he says a quick prayer and then says to the king, well, I don't think that was just a quick prayer. I think it was four or five months of praying. And that was just a, another like, Lord, okay, now's the chance. I prayed, I asked for that opportunity. You just opened the door, right? Like many of us do, we, we pray, Lord, give, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. And then someone says, how do you get to heaven? Oh, have a nice day. Because <laughs> we just didn't want to have to deal with it, right? Um, determine where this text fits in God's progressive plan. All right, so I just mentioned this one. In Nehemiah 1.1, okay, that we have the month of Chelev, and then you have the month of Nisan. So Chelev is November, December time frame, and Nisan is about March or April. We even have the time. 20th year of Artaxerxes, which puts it at 440, uh, 446 BC. So that's why, you know, we might be able to, to see the, the, uh, the, where, the where. The next one we want to look at is what, okay? Are there any key themes? Key themes are going to be some things that are repeated, okay? Key events. Determine any in, indicators from the structure of the text, Revelation 20 mentions thousand years six times in six verses. Hmm, seems pretty important. Seems pretty literal, by the way. Um, 
just saying, uh, determine any specific problems or needs that have to be addressed, uh, any quotations from other books. In, you, you have Paul quoting the Cretans to Titus. Does that mean the, Cre the Cretans are, you know, the Cretan poets are, are, are inspired? No. He's just quoting them and using it. Okay, determine, and that's from a non-biblical source. But you know, when we look at key terms, I'm gonna, I want to do something. Um, I'm going to open to your favorite book of the Bible. Okay, I know all of you, you, you all love this book. It's, it's one of your favorite books to study. I'm going to open to the book of Leviticus. You don't have to turn there because you, you, you could do this at a later time. I'm going to turn to, to Leviticus chapter 18. I am not going to repeat or sorry, I'm, I'm not going to reread a single verse. I'm going to read just some verses, and I'm, I'm each one, each time I do it, I'm reading a different verse. And I just want you guys to shout out the word "stop" when you see something that may give you a clue to what Leviticus is about, because there may be something that's a repeated key theme. Are you ready? You tell me. I mean, because this may be really hard. This is a hard exercise. Ready? All right. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Uh, is, it, what was it, what, is there a key theme here? What is it? I am the Lord. Yeah. The, the, actually, when you do this, there's about a dozen phrases that I could give you where if you read Leviticus, it will it'll radically change the way you look at Leviticus. But you look at those key verses and you're going to see the gospel in Leviticus more than any other Old Testament book. The whole theme of Leviticus is Cleanliness and uncleanliness, purity and impurity. I'm trying to emphasize, you and I are not clean. We need a sacrifice for an offering. And we're not qualified to do it. But the Lord is the one who sanctifies. Because He is the Lord. You ever see that in Leviticus before? But it's throughout the whole book. When you start looking, and, I, and the reason I did that was I, was I was happened to be in the book of Leviticus chapter 18 when I was learning these things. And I said, well, I'm in Leviticus. Let me see if I can figure out what the key theme is. And it didn't take me to chapter 19 to figure it out. And you guys didn't let me get to chapter 19 either. <laughs> I had two more in 18. <laughs> so you look for the repetition sometimes. Things like that will help. There's a repetition in the book of Judges. They did what's right in their own eyes. Right? And there's a circular pattern that you end up seeing. They do, they do things their own way. They get in trouble. They, they're oppressed. God saves them. They're thankful. And let's go right back to self-sufficient. Right? That pattern tells us the what. So let's ask this one, the why. Okay. Determine if, a, if the author has a purpose for writing his texts. If the author had, he may have multiple purposes and he'll say so. Some authors have a, one specific purpose, some have multiple. Determine if there's any principles that are being provided. Or, or if the text has something that's specific to a time and a culture. Some, some of the things that we have in the scripture have, are not directed to us. The promise of, of Jeremiah 29 11, it was not directed toward us personally. It was to a specific people, a specific time. So you want to figure out the authorial intent. So here's an example of that. John 20, verse 31, he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may lift up his name. 
Why is it so many people to encourage non-believers to start reading the, the Bible from the book of John? Because John tells us why. His whole focus is that you would believe in Christ. John does, provides it also in 1 John 5, 30, 13, where he says, I write these things unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. Who is John writing to in 1 John? What's the issue he's addressing? Huh? Gnosticism. He's writing to people who are getting engaged with the Gnostics and saying, I'm writing to these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life if you believe in the Son of God or in Jesus as the Son of God. He's writing to them that they may know that. That's the purpose. So, this is the second key. The first key, what was the first key? Identification, where I identify the type of text we're dealing with. The second is investigation. So we've now, we have a, hopefully a sheet of paper and we've asked who, when, what, where, why, the, the five, right? You want to write those out. Just, just, just write it out. Right? Paul and Philemon, Onesimus. You put, just write it on a sheet of paper and we're going to come back to what you do with that. So hold that for a moment. Now we're going to get to the third key is interpretation. All right, so we get to the interpretation. So what you're going to do here is something I, I, want, I want to encourage you to do something most of us are not used to doing, uh, but it, it will be immensely helpful for you. All right, you, I want you to work on charting a passage. Write it out, put it into a computer, you know, have the verse there. The first thing you want to do is note paragraph breaks or sentence breaks, but keep in mind those not inspired. Okay? Actually, there wasn't punctuation in the first century. So we don't know where the sentences actually would have been, you know, there or not. And so what you have is, it, you know, that's the translator's argumentation of where chapter or, or a good break for a chapter or paragraph break or sentence break, but those are not inspired. But they're helpful. So you can look for it. But what defines a sentence? Three things define a sentence. Hmm? Mm hmm? A verb, a noun. Not preposition, but I actually give you the answer up there. A complete thought. See, I, you just had to cheat and look at it. It was an open book quiz. You need a subject, a predicate, and a complete thought. A noun, a verb, a complete thought. Have you ever spent the time when, you, when you're looking in the Bible and actually asking, what's the noun? What's the verb? What's the thought? Because what, what I want to do is I want to show you that what a lot of people end up doing is a lot of people make the emphasis on the minor thing and not the major thing. They focus it wrong. Let me give you some examples. I mentioned this already. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't think I've ever been to a missions conference where the focus was not on go. Now, I made it easy for you. I color-coded this. Anyone want to take a shot at what the, what the actual imperative verb is here? Make. Yeah, there you go. Anyone want to take a shot at what they think the subject might be? Disciples. So if the verb is make and the noun is disciples... Why would go be the emphasis? Actually, in the Greek, that should be going. It's an adverb. 
It supports the verb. In other words, as you go, make disciples. As you go about your day. How many of you guys go to the library? How many of you guys go to grocery stores? How many of you go to, well, don't go to Starbucks. Go somewhere to get coffee. A coffee shop. Huh? Yeah. (laughs) So so why why do you go to coffee shop? Why do you go to the grocery store? No, actually, that's not what this verse was saying we should be doing. We should be going to make disciples, and as we go, get some coffee on the way. Now, I say it that way because, you know, I I went into a Dunkin' Donuts, and what I used to do is I would go in, and I'd walk and hand out tracts through the line, and then I'd go to the back of the line, and I did that once, and I... This guy comes and he got his coffee, comes out. He says, hey, can I, while he was in line, he was reading the track. He says, hey, can I ask you a question? So I'm talking to him and, and the line wasn't moving very fast. But I eventually got out of line so that I wasn't holding up the line. And we were talking 20 minutes in the Dunkin' Donuts. And then we walked outside and I followed him. And we went outside and I'm talking with him for another 20 minutes. And he goes to his car. I get in my car. I drive away and I went, I forgot to get coffee. <laughs> but that's okay because I didn't go to get coffee. I went to make disciples and I happen to get coffee most of the times, but that time I didn't. Right? That's the idea. As we go about our day, make disciples. So if you have someone that doesn't know Christ, the first thing to do is share the gospel. Right? So this is the thing that we end up seeing. Let me give you where, where this is helpful in another way. What is the, what is the purpose of Scripture? Hmm. Good question. I'm glad you asked. So let me answer it. According to 2 Timothy 3, 13, uh, 3, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed, uh, is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And I know a lot of people that focus on this, right, on this teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. In fact, I talked about Hebrew poetry, right? Yeah, let me show you some Hebrew poetry. So teaching is right thinking. Reproof is wrong thinking, correction is right behavior, and is wrong behavior, and training is right behavior. So I've color-coded this for you. See how it's right and wrong in your thinking and behavior. In other words, in every area of life. And so many people say, well, this is the purpose of Scripture. Scripture is to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, for, to train us for righteousness. But when we chart, when we're going to focus on charting or what we call block diagramming a text, we, we're going to look to identify what's the supporting, okay, something, an adverb supports a verb. A prepositional phrase supports the, the, the thought. And so if you have a prepositional phrase or an adverb, you, you kind of want to say, okay, that's supporting, that's indented, so we, that's not the main thing. So we want to focus to have the main thing and the main thing, right? Okay. So let's... I, 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 this is in case anyone gets upset. I'm going to cross out some of the Bible. I'm not Thomas Jefferson. I know he did that. But let, let's just forsake. Let, let's take that same passage. Let's cross out the prepositional phrases. Well, that's a little messy, isn't it? Okay. Let me let me just get rid of them all together. All Scripture is breathed out and profitable, that the man may be complete, equipped. You see, all of those other things that those four things that people focus on. They're supportive. How do I know that? They're prepositional phrases. The main thing is this. All Scripture is so that you and I would be complete and equipped. 
Anyone here feel complete? You know what? You are. Anyone feel equipped? You are. Why? Because no matter what the world throws at us, guess what we have? We have a final authority on everything. We have the, the words of the creator of the universe that tells us in an objective way exactly what he means. And as long as we dig into this, we can answer those questions that people challenge us with. We have the answers. Okay? One of the other things we want to do is examine the context. This is now when, as we're looking at the trying to do the investigation. What's the context? We and I've mentioned this already, but what, what's the, what is the text before? What are the texts that are after the text that we're, we're looking at? Read those. This, this is why it's, it's so good that you, know, you have a pastor who's going to go verse by verse through the Bible. That's, you, you should appreciate that. That way you know where he's going to be. So you know the context from last week. It's, it's going to pick up right from there into this week. Right? That's a blessing that you have that. Research the background of characters. Research the themes and events. Research any time factors, the text of the book. Research the purposes, the reasons for the book, any, any geography. So remember I said all those who, what, when, where, why? You made the list of all those things? Now's where you're going to research them. You get yourself a Bible encyclopedia or, or Bible dictionary and start looking all those things up and start saying, okay, I was curious. What, so what, you know, I mentioned about Laodicea with the hot springs and the cold springs. Makes a big difference in understanding that passage, doesn't it? What do you, how did I figure that out? Well, I went and studied about that area. Learned about a whole lot about that area and start studying that. That's what we do. So you get a Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia and, and you can get some of them even free. You can go to Blue Letter Bible and, and get it. They have a lot of resources out there for free. And so you do that and then as you do that, Start to look at all of the geography things, you, the where's, the when's, the who's. Get all of that together and start writing it out. Find, you know, do your discovery. And then you start looking at other scriptures. You know, start looking for where there's parallel passages or, or something where it quotes, an, a New Testament quotes the old. Or maybe some cross-references or, or references to, to other scriptures. And here's something that I said to the men this morning is we, when we do this, when we compare the scriptures, we always have to remember that we take the harder to understand passages and we interpret them by the easier. So we start with something that's easier to understand, those instructional passages, and then we move to the hard to understand. Because if it's harder to understand, it, it, we, it's like, okay, well, this is hard to interpret, so let's start with ones that are easy because now we know what the instruction is. That's gonna, there's not going to be an inconsistency in the Bible. Okay? But we are going to take a literal meaning first. We don't look for some spiritual meaning. Now, maybe times that we have an allegory or we have an idiom or we have something that's meant to be spiritual, but we first look at it and say, is this, we take it in a literal sense first. Is it meant to be literal? And if we don't quite understand it, if it doesn't make sense literally, then we start looking for, okay, could this have a different meaning then? All right? But this is where the real work gets in. This is where we're going to dig in now. You're, you're going to start comparing, okay, look, let's look at all these scriptures. Because guess what you have to do with all these other scriptures you're comparing with? You've got to do all this work that you just did with the one verse, who, what, when, where, why, how, with these verses. When does it stop? <laughs> well, it doesn't. 
All right? And then you, here's the interesting thing. Having done all of this work, now we get to the question of comparing with others. Um, oh, that's interesting. I just realized that my timer had stopped at 26 minutes. I'm like, oh, I have plenty of time. And I realized I don't. <laughs> um, but that's okay. We're, we're close to finishing on time anyway. So this is where we look at commentaries. All right? Why do I have this last? Because commentaries are written by who? Yeah. Can men be wrong? That's right. It doesn't matter who the commentator is, they could be wrong. And so we have to realize that there's also something else that can happen. Those men can convince you with really good arguments and still be wrong. And so we, we can't, we could can be influenced, especially if it's someone who, so we, like for me, one of the last commentators I would read is John MacArthur. Because he's influenced me so much, I've, I've listened to so much of his teaching, I might be prone to, to believe what he says because he said it. Right? So I would read him last. But I do all this study before I read any commentators. Why do, do that? Well, because the commentators may, you may come to a conclusion, the commentators show you you're wrong. There's something you didn't think of. You should always be nervous if you're the only one that thought of something, by the way. It's probably a, a dangerous place. After 2,000 years of Christianity, if you're the only one that came up with this, safe bet that you're probably wrong. Okay? But we want to learn the background of the people that wrote the commentaries too. Don't just, just, don't just trust the commentary. You know, I have commentaries on my shelves written by unsaved men. Liberals who don't believe in the supernatural. But they are so good with some of the, the Greek and some of the technicalities of Greek because they don't care about people's soul. They've just got a job. <laughs> right? And so they, really, they could focus on the, on the minutia of the languages and things like that and do an excellent job. And it's really helpful. But they don't believe that Jesus is God. Right? So I've got to know that going into it. Which means I, when I read a commentary, I got to know a little bit about the commentator. Which is good that there's actually a book about, that is a commentary on commentators and tells you a little bit about all the history so that you know a little bit about, yo, th I'm using this commentary? Oh, let me find out about the authors. That's helpful. Okay? Okay, so, what was the first key? I identify a type of literature. What was the second key? Investigation. Investigation. What was the third key? Interpretation. So the fourth key, anyone want to take a guess what letter it's going to start with? Okay. Implementation. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't say application. I needed an I. All right. This is the last step. And it's really interesting because this is, for many people, the first step. You ever go into a Bible study and, and everyone, no one's actually studied the passage that they're all supposed to be looking at and someone that's leading it just goes, so what does this mean to you? Having done no study. Well, I think it doesn't matter what you think. What does it mean? I, I had a pastor, he used to refer to those studies as a show your ignorance study. Everyone comes and shows how little they know of the Word of God. Because we often start with the application. We often are coming to the Bible saying, what does it mean to me? What am I going to get out of it? Well, you're not going to know until you do all this other work first. And so when we get to the implementation, let me give you some things to ask yourself. You evaluate your own strengths and weaknesses. Often we, we, we don't mind looking at our strengths, right? 
Those weaknesses, can we avoid looking at those? Yeah, well, those are the areas we need to work on, right? How do the areas of the study that you're doing, how does it apply to your life? Your social life, your family life, your church life, your work life, relationship with God, personal, emotional, finances, physical, thoughts, recreational time. Ooh, that one hurts. Determine if there's any life principles that, that are here. Yeah, as we go through all this, we should be looking at the passage and, and now if we're going to apply it to our lives to say, okay, now that I have an understanding of what the passage means, how does it apply? And, and what areas can I apply it to? All these different ways that we, we, after we have an understanding, that's when we take it to this. Now, does this sound like a very difficult process so far? Good! I want that to be the thought. It is hard. It's a lot of work. Is it rewarding? There's nothing more important than we could do than to know what this actually teaches. God is talking to us through this. He doesn't talk to us through feelings or verbally or you know, giving us a nudging. And if anyone believes that he does, I'll recommend Jim Osmond's book, God Doesn't Whisper. All the arguments people make for God speaking to us today Hearing the voice of God, he'll answer that in that book. But we have God himself speaking to us. Make it our life mission to know what he says. Nothing more valuable than that in life. And so the, the, this is important. It's the most, one of the most important things we could do, so we should study to be accurate to the word of God. Because if we're accurate to the word of God, it's going to help us with a whole lot of the problems we have in life. All the things that people call pastor up to say, pastor, I got this problem. And what's he giving you anyway? He's giving you the word of God. Cut the middleman out and just go right to, the, to God. <laughs> Stop bothering him. As I said to the men, you know what? Start learning how to interpret the, God, the word of God and start bothering him with, hey, pastor, I want to study this out. Am I doing this right? I, I'm pretty sure I guarantee, knowing Pastor Steve, he would love that to sit down with you and say, yeah, let's look at this passage together. That's a, I'll just tell you, it's much more encouraging to, as a pastor to have someone and sit, let's sit down and interpret together rather than, well, my wife didn't cook my eggs the right way. Just saying. Instead of just saying, you know, the answer to that is, by the way, would, did you, you want to cook your own eggs? Just asking. Be thankful you got the eggs, okay? So, so this, but this seemed like a lot of work. Yeah? Good. Now, here's, here's going to be my thing for you. Do you guys realize that your pastor does this every week? This is what he has to do every single Sunday. It doesn't matter if there's a funeral. It doesn't matter if someone gets sick. It doesn't matter what happens in life. Sunday still comes. And he's got to do all of this work every week so that we can end up hearing from the Word of God and understand the meaning of it. So let me encourage you with this. Are, and, and even though he's here, I'm still going to encourage you. Are you praying enough for your pastor? Are you, you realizing how much work he does for, for you as a congregation? If it seems like a lot of work, it is. It's great and rewarding work. And I got, I'll tell you a little secret. You guys on a Sunday don't even get the best of the stuff. Because most of it comes out of the study. And he can't bring that all out. Okay? He, he, gets, he gets a better reward than you guys because he can't, you only let him preach for an hour. You know? 
Let him go for three or four and you might get more of it, okay? <laughs> hey, in Europe, they do that. So uh, actually in a lot of places. But here's one other aspect that I, I don't hear often taught when, when we talk about how to interpret. Prayer. Throughout this whole process, you should be praying. What should be praying about? Well, pray through the text. Talk to God about the text. Talk to God over the difficulties you're having in the passage. Pray through each of these steps, asking the Lord, Lord, am I on the right track? Is this right, what I'm thinking? Bathe the whole thing in prayer. All right? And so with that, uh, you know, and I'll be here to answer any questions you have. As I said earlier, I can answer any question you have about God in the Bible. Um, I, I already mentioned, but in the back we have the syllabus for our, our academy. But if you want, you can go to strivingfraternity.org. We have our academy courses. They're all on YouTube for free until YouTube takes it down. But don't worry. I also have it on a place called Odyssey that uses blockchain. They can't take it down. So once YouTube kicks us off, we just go flip and we're going to we're going to change where it all points to, and we'll be back up and running until they shut our website down. <laughs> uh, but some books that I do have in the back, uh, What Do They Believe is, is on the major Western religions. Uh, a good book if you want to know what they believe, not how to refute them, but what they actually believe, so that when you talk to someone of those religions, you can talk intelligently. How many of you spoke to someone who's a Muslim? Okay. Have you been told that we believe in three gods? Yeah. And what, what is your immediate reaction? Yeah, you just reject everything they're going to say about what you believe after that, right? So th that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give you guys something that's credible, that actually I went to imams and said, am I accurate to what you believe? Okay? So I'm not trying to refute them, but tell you what they actually believe. I have a Christian systematic theology that is back there called What Do We Believe? It's, it's, um, one, one of the things that makes us different is the most difficult question that gets, we get challenged with is, can you trust the Bible? It's an area called textual criticism, and I cover that in chapter 2 in a way that is easy to understand. Uh, I also have back there a book called Sharing the Good News with Mormons. That's really good if you want to share it with Mormons, but it's actually 24 different authors, and we're all sharing different ways to share the gospel. Now, it's focused toward Mormons, but not everyone's style is to Mormons. Mean, they gave me the chapter of, of doing uh, open-air evangelism. Well, I could do that everywhere. I don't do it just to Mormons. So, um, Any of you guys listen to podcasts? Okay, so those who listen to podcasts, take your phone out and go look for my podcast called The Rap Report. Uh, it's a weekly show where, I, where I, we do biblical interpretations and applications. Um, and there's actually a card on the table that I'll, I'll tell you so you can get more podcasts. Uh, my other podcast is Thursday Nights. We do a live stream so you can join anytime. If for, you, for you guys, it's, it's 5 to, to 7. Uh, but it, you go to apologeticslive.com. There's a little duck icon that's for StreamYard, and you can join us, and you can ask me anything. We get into lots of discussions, but any questions you have. But it's a good show to learn apologetics, so that's also a podcast that you can download. And there's some cards in the back for the Christian podcast community. Both my podcasts are part of the Christian podcast community. We have about 50 podcasts out there, and we heavily vet them. We actually only accept about 30 to 40% of the people that apply. Even personal friends of mine have been rejected. <laughs> So knowing me does not give you any kind of benefit. Uh, and, and lastly, I'll just say, if you'd, if you'd want to consider uh, supporting us monthly, uh, we have some cards in the back. Um, our mission at Striving Fraternity is unlike most parachurch ministries. 
we go in, we actually try to go into small churches that can't afford to, to bring people in. So here's a scary statistic for you. you. You think of the churches that have like thousands and tens of thousands of people. You know what the average size of the church is? 75. And when you think of all those big churches with thousands, it means the overwhelming majority of churches are 20, 25 people. You think a church that size with a pastor who's struggling to work a side job and preach and he's doing all this work we just discussed and he's got to do all that work and then, come, you know, he's still working a side job to pay bills and he's got to do all that work in the week while working a 40 plus hour job, right? He doesn't have time to bring, bring seminars like this into the church to equip people to do a conference and so what we do is we go into those churches to kind of, kind of spur them on, to give them the training, do a seminar like this to get them excited about the Word of God, get them excited about evangelizing or apologetics, and then get that church hopefully growing and, and just be a blessing to the church and the pastor. And that's what our monthly supporters help us do so that we can go into churches like that because no one else is going to go there. I, I, there's no, I don't know of a single uh, parachurch ministry that has that mindset. They all go to the big churches where the money and the people are. We go to the small churches where there's no money and no people. <laughs> and so we can only do it with people's help. Question? There, uh, there shouldn't be, but I might have to figure out how to clean those up. The, look for one that has the latest. Uh, so there's, there's two rap reports. There's the rap report daily and the rap report. And so I haven't been doing the daily, but you could, you could go back and re-listen to old ones of the daily. But because we, had, we, we moved our feeds, so there may be some old feeds, so just grab the one. If it has a picture, it won't look like that because that's the old picture. I could tell you that. If it looks like that, that's probably old. Um, but look for the one that has the, a download from this week. Uh, and actually, if you're doing it now, the latest one is on, yeah, yeah the, yeah, the better looking one. <laughs> Same ugly face, but the, just the background image look, looks better. Um, the latest one, I think, is either on, uh, I think it's about God. It, it's uh, dinosaurs, uh, dinosaurs, Dragons in the Bible. That's the latest episode that just dropped this Wednesday. Okay. So, but if you have any questions... <laughs> Instead of saying I'm your majesty, sir. Yeah, son or daughter of the king. Well, okay. So I did do this on Apologetics Live. We had a guy that was, uh, he, he was purposely, purposely came in with a, a bow tie, a transgender bow tie that he wears specifically um, to be on his, his own podcast. And it's part of his, his thing. You know, he wears that just for when he's recording on video. So he comes into our thing. He came in and we had a discussion and he wanted to come back and have a, have a further discussion. And because he wanted to deal with stuff I wasn't expert on, I brought James White in and so he and James White talked. And, but when, that, when we started, because I already knew his position on things, I said, I said because um, he, he you know, wanted to make sure we use proper pronouns and he's a guy, but he, he, was, he did identify himself as a he. Like, when someone comes in and says, I'm he, him, right? you know that they're, and it's fine, he's, he is a guy and he's, we're actually using proper pronouns. We're amazing. But I said to him, I said, well, are you going to respect my pronoun? 
And he says, oh, yes. I said, okay. My pronoun is God, exi God exists, he has spoken. I expect you to use that every time you refer to me. <laughs> he never did somehow. I don't know. But see, I, I'll do that. Just, you know, I point out the craziness of it, but it's in fun. Any, any questions? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so why is it so important to rely on the Holy Spirit? Right? I talked about praying. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life is to illuminate God's word to us. To help us not only in the understanding of it but the application of it. Cuz guess what? The commentators we read, they don't know what we're going through. In fact, if, even if I know what you're going through, I don't know what you're going through. Because even if I went through a similar thing, we both, we both deal with it differently. But the Holy Spirit knows you. He knows your situation, and He knows His Word. So He can apply it where no other human being could. And it's, it's His ministry to help us in an understanding of the Spirit. So does that mean we don't need a pastor? No, because this is hard work, isn't it? We need someone to help us. And so does your pastor need a pastor? Well, yeah, I mean, he, but, but see, he's got the Holy Spirit. But when you're digging in and doing this work all the time, you're, gonna, you're, getting, you're getting much more out of the study than you're ever going to teach to others, okay? So let me, let me say this. If you're teaching the, the, the children, if you're teaching for the, you know, the, the, the youth group or the junior church or whatever you may call it, um, when you have the kids, I encourage you not to go buying, you know, curriculum off the shelf that you just open up Saturday night and read to figure out what you're going to do. I, I, my encouragement to you is talk to pastor and say, hey, what are you going to be teaching on? Do that same level of study. Or maybe you won't do the same, but, but spend 10 hours. In, in my first church, what the pastor used to do is he would give those of us that worked with the kids we got an outline, and we had to do our own study. And it, we had to put at least 10 hours of work in every week to teach the kids. We didn't have to, but we didn't, you know what we didn't do? We didn't have to do a bunch of crafts and things like that because we knew the text well enough. We had studied it enough that we knew how to apply it to children and keep their, their attention. We didn't need the crafts and the, and the games and things like that to keep their attention. We used the Word of God to keep their attention. And if you doubt that, um, I actually, when I first pastored my, my first church, uh, we, the church had a church retreat. <clears throat> and when they hired me, it was already, we, they already had a speaker. And so they, we were trying to figure out what to do with the children. And I said, my wife and I will we'll take the kids. Okay, what are you going to do with them? We're going to teach them the doctrine of Trinity. What? <laughs> you're, you're talking five to 12-year-olds. Yeah, we're going to teach them the doctrine of Trinity. Five-year-olds? Yeah, we're going to. So you know what I did? At the, last, at the end of three days, every parent came in to get their child. And I said, okay, I got two questions for every parent. And if you need help, your kids can help you. Define the Trinity and support it in Scripture. Go ahead. And, and parent after parent, as they're struggling, the kids are going, oh, well, this is, the, the, this is where you find it. And everyone realized even a five-year-old can understand the doctrine of Trinity and support it in Scripture. It just changes how you teach it. But if you, you have to study it and know it. But the Holy Spirit, that's His ministry. The commentators are helpful, 
But if you don't do the work, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I read commentators and go, they got it wrong. Not because I'm so smart, it's because I, I see that they broke the rules. We're all prone to do that. I break the rules sometimes, I'm sure. And usually people will point it out, you know. But I, I make different things. You know, you know what I once did? This is so bad. I once did this here at this church. And I'm, I'm going to look at Pastor Stephen, hope that he doesn't remember this. From the pulpit, I accidentally said Judas died on the cross for your sins several years ago. And, and a little eight-year-old boy goes, Pastor Andrew, do you know you said Judas died on the cross? I went back and re-listened. I was like, oh, I'm horrified. And I did, after listening, I did pray like, Lord, just to help everyone to like have forgotten about that. Of course, I haven't. I haven't gotten over it yet. Any other questions? All right, well, I'll still be here to answer any questions that anyone has. Um, I thank you for, for having, us, having me in to be able to teach. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope this really gives you a better appreciation both of the Word of God and what your pastor does every week. Um, and I, ho I hope, my real heart's desire is that I gave you not only equipped you to be able to better understand how to interpret the Word of God, how to study, but I hope I also gave you a greater love for the Word of God. All right? That, that's, that's my heart's desire.